Welcome to Talking About Blood. I'm Helen Osborne, host of this podcast series and a member of the advisory board for The Blood Project. I also produce and host my own podcast series, Health Literacy Out Loud. Today, I'm talking with Dr. John Holcomb, who is professor of surgery at the University of Alabama. He was a much decorated colonel in the U.S. Army, working for many years as a trauma surgeon in Iraq and other conflict areas. Building on his experience in battlefield trauma and resuscitation, Dr. Holcomb now is actively involved in clinical medicine, education, research, entrepreneurship, and health IT. Welcome to Talking About Blood. Helen, thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. So I am sure our listeners of this podcast, who include trainees or those who want to become doctors, those who are practicing uh, physicians and other on, and others on medical teams, and also people just interested in all aspects of blood, I'm sure we all, as I do, want to know a little more about the experiences, some of your experiences as a trauma surgeon on the battlefield. I'm hoping we can also talk about what are some lessons that you've learned from those experiences and how that applies to medical care in the civilian world. Yep, I'm looking looking forward to it. Okay, taking it from the start, uh, give us a picture of what it is like as the trauma surgeon on the battlefield. You know, um, a lot of the time, Helen, it's boring. Really? And there's nothing, there's nothing going on, which, of course, is fabulous, right? Because nobody's getting hurt. So interspersed then with times of, I wouldn't say chaos, but lots of activity, um, the team working really well together, focused on saving lives and usually multiple lives at the same time. Okay. You know, the doctors, nurses, and medics all working together as a team. You know, it's really interesting as you say it's really boring because what all I know is what I've seen on the news. And all the news, it's 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 not boring at all. Yeah, you know, it's of course the news only shows that that exciting part um and the drama part because that makes good news. Yeah. If you talk to folks um uh, and and you know, we have now deployed literally, literally millions of Americans to the battlefield in this this war. Mm-hmm. Um, there are periods, long periods of time, and nothing going on. And I just would reiterate, that's a really good thing because nobody's getting hurt. Of course, of course. But when something is going on, it is profound and um, matter of truly of life and death. Can you explain from your perspective as a surgeon in this situation, when an incident happens. I'm not even sure I have the right word if an incident is the right word. But when something happens and all of a sudden there's one or more patients with you, what's it like as a trauma surgeon? And specifically, what are the aspects about blood? Because that's what we're talking about is about the blood part. You know, the casualty events um, or incidents, as you said, are, are, they are dramatic and they are uh, emotional and they are gut-wrenching, mm. and they are lifelong-lasting. But 
I just would go back to that team effort of everybody working together. And it's, people talk about the surgeon. You know, the surgeon can't do anything without the technician putting the instrument in his or her hands. Okay. The nurses taking care of the patient. And ultimately, getting to the point of, the, of our podcast, Helen, delivering blood uh, from the blood bank or from a walking blood bank um, and and hanging the blood on the patient. So it's it's you're the person kind of who's getting a lot of the attention because you're the surgeon, but it takes the whole team to do it. So so somebody has been horrifically injured and now they're, you know, in surgery. Tell us more about that part about the blood. What happens? And you also use the term of a walking blood bank. So tell us more about that. You know, this really is a history of blood, which I think is really interesting. Um, people have been getting injured, of course, for for millennia, for thousands and thousands of years. The the, the cause of injuries have changed, obviously, with gunpowder and bullets and bombs and mines and that sort of thing on the battlefield mm-hmm. compared to previous years. But the human body hasn't changed much in thousands of years, and the response to injury hasn't changed much. Yeah. despite the different wounding agents. What, what is interesting is blood has only been used for resuscitation of, of casualties uh, and resuscitation of patients in, who've lost you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% of their blood volume. Okay, and I just want to clarify for those of us like me who are not physicians, when you say resuscitation, I think of CPR or something, you, are you using that in the broader term that kind of keeps someone alive? Right, thank you. So if, if Helen, if you uh, get shot while we're talking on the phone, Ooh, horrible, okay. and you fall down and you're bleeding, you're bleeding out, and you lose 20, 30, 40% of your, the blood that's inside your blood vessels because it damaged the major blood vessel, and the medics will show up, 911 gets called, and they will resuscitate you with blood. Right? They will put an IV in, and start putting blood back into your blood vessels to bring your blood pressure back up. At, at the same time, they're going to try to stop the bleeding, right? So mm-hmm. you have to give blood and stop bleeding at the same time. And that really, that summarizes, you know, what the whole team does. It's actually pretty simple. <laughs> it, it does clear it does sound clear and it reminds me of what i've read about kind of about the history of blood and blood letting and leeches and all kinds of things that happened hundreds of years ago probably even longer than that is it pretty straightforward like that just give people blood and stop the bleeding or is there more to it for all our listeners kind of want to know how does this apply to civilian medical care yeah, so I, I, I'm a student of history, and specifically military history, and, and then focusing actually on blood transfusion during these times. And in World War One and World War Two, Korea, it was just as simple as that. You got injured, we had to, the, the medics, the whole team, the medics, the nurses, docs, worked to stop bleeding, mm-hmm. and we gave blood back. In Korea, I'm sorry, in Vietnam, and in the civilian world at the same time in the 70s, we got a little distracted. We got a little confused mm-hmm. uh, for about 30 years with different kinds of fluids to resuscitate uh, instead of blood. But I would say in the last decade, last 15 years, really coming from that experience on the battlefield, 
and then translating that experience into the civilian world, blood has, has resumed its proper place as the primary resuscitation fluid. That's interesting. It's interesting to me, too, that for, it was kind of out of practice for several decades there and has come back. What, John, from all your perspectives, because you're still a practicing physician and surgeon and you, you bring all these important experiences on the battlefield, what would you want listeners of this podcast to know? You know, I think, and I think the, um, and this obviously comes from a viewpoint of practicing medicine now for 35, 40 years, know why you're doing something. Okay. Know why you're doing something. I practiced medicine for many years. I was taught by my fellow residents and faculty, mm-hmm. and I really didn't dive into why I was doing what I had been taught. Can you give an example, please? Sure. Well, I gave, if we talk just resuscitation for a second, I gave a lot of the clear fluid, you know, the clear bags of fluid that are mm-hmm. really good for people who have diarrhea or dehydration or heat stroke. Mm-hmm. But I didn't give blood to patients who were bleeding to death. And I did what I did for many, many years because I was taught to do that. And I didn't ask why I was doing that. It was just, that's what was done. And then and then we went to the battlefield um, in you know, multiple places. And you start seeing these patients who do better with more blood. Mm-hmm. And they do worse with the standard way we had been taught to resuscitate patients with the clear fluids. Oh. And you collect the data and do the research and analyze the results, and it becomes very clear. And that experience by a lot of people on the battlefield has changed practice, not only on the battlefield and in the civilian world, and not just in the U.S., but around the world. So when I'm hearing you started uh, know why you're doing something, it also seems to be question why you are doing something has been in practice. And then you talked about trying something else, collecting the data and analyzing the results. Maybe that somebody new to practice can do that. What would be your advice for someone who's been doing this for decades and it's always been done this way? What would you want to see there? You know, when we sit and talk about these kind of things um, in the academic setting where we teach residents and medical students every day, mm-hmm. um, what we, we tell folks, so look, look around you and, and just what I said, think about why you're doing what you're doing and question, question tradition, you know, respectfully mm-hmm. and, and put, uh, try to put good data, uh, mm-hmm. results driven, outcome driven next mm-hmm. to these questions. Uh, question everything, right? Question everything. I'm wondering how hard that is for someone who's been doing this and it just got in the groove of doing this for a while. But that's something that people have to consider and I think hearing from you is very important. How about for the lay public? What would you want all of us to know about blood and trauma and resuscitation that maybe we can un- just as an interesting fact that we can learn, or maybe we can share with somebody else. So, number one, donate blood. Okay. Go, do- go donate. Go donate. There is a nationwide shortage of blood right now. Well publicized, well known. Um, go donate blood. Okay. Number two, 
talk to your local EMS agency, the medics who ride in the ambulances. Every little, every community has an EMS agency. Find out if they carry blood products, mm-hmm. right? If they don't, ask why they don't. Oh. Blood products uh, given, the sooner you give blood to a patient who needs it, the better their survival. In, end of statement. And it's not accepted practice. It's not common practice everywhere. It's not common practice everywhere. It's changing. It's changing. But, tr- you know, what's the hardest thing to change, Helen? Tradition. Oh. Tra- tradition um, says to give the clear fluid, and the data says give blood. Oh, okay. And is this interwoven with issues of cost and accessibility? If there's not enough blood out there, or blood costs more maybe than the clear fluids? Yeah, always. Always, always, right? Money money is always uh, a part of this equation. You know, but the whole medical system, right, exists to improve outcome and save lives. And it is really clear that in patients who need it, and it's a small percentage of patients, uh, but in patients who need, who are in hemorrhagic shock, who've lost all that blood that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. out of their blood vessels, the sooner they get, and it's minutes, the sooner they get blood back into their blood vessels, they, uh, the higher their survival rate. Oh, and it is a matter, truly a matter of minutes. Thank you. Thank you for um, having questioned why practice was the way it was, for trying something else, looking at the data, measuring it, and sharing with all of us about what we can do because what we all have in common, we all share this interest and dedication to saving lives and improving the human condition. And John, I thank you so much for also sharing that with listeners of Talking About Blood. My pleasure, Helen. It's great talking to you. As we just heard from Dr. John Holcomb, our work is all about saving lives and having good outcomes. But sometimes what we've learned by tradition and habit is not always the most effective. To learn more about the Blood Project and explore its many resources for professionals and trainees, patients and the lay public, please go to www.thebloodproject.com. I invite you to also listen to my podcast series about health communication called Health Literacy Out Loud at www.healthliteracyoutloud.com. Please help spread the word about this podcast series and The Blood Project. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Helen Osborne.